Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hello and welcome to Lady Startup Stories, a podcast all about finding out how female entrepreneurs built their businesses, big or small. Lady Startup Stories is part of the Lady Startup Movement that helps women launch and grow their own businesses. If it was founded or co-founded by a woman, it's a lady startup. My name's Georgia Love and last year I became one of the many women who joined the ranks of lady startups across the country. My business, Georgia Elliott, is a sleepwear brand I started with my best friend. And it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done. But it was exciting and it also made me curious. How do other people start their businesses? And what have other women learnt along the way? I have plenty of questions, which is why I'm here. I've taken the reins off Mia this season and over the next eight weeks, I'm going to be speaking to some incredible Aussie women who've stepped out of their comfort zone and gone their own way. And one of those is my guest today. I'm Sarah Davidson and this is my Lady Startup story. Sarah Davidson was a young, hardworking lawyer with severe caffeine habit when she was diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, a condition which left her in a state of constant exhaustion and no, not even 10 cups of coffee a day could help her. In a bid to replace her coffee addiction whilst travelling in Asia, Sarah discovered matcha, a finely ground powder of green tea leaves. Little did she know that that discovery would lead her to start a side hustle called Matcha Maiden and later on become a full-time self-described fun entrepreneur. Sarah is also the host of the Seize the Yay podcast and has just written a book totally transforming what was her corporate career into a lady startup. Sarah Davidson is here with me today. Uh, You may know her as Spoonful of Sarah. You are an incredibly successful lady startup and we want to pick your brains about how, when, why, advice, everything you know from not just creating an incredibly successful brand, which then grew into different streams and different arms, but doing a massive, massive life change, uh, which is something that so many people in our lady startup community are kind of you know grappling with at a certain point in their career of kind of going this is my career or I thought it was Mm. but I've got this other idea that I'm really passionate about or I don't feel right here and I'm wondering whether I should move so I'm really excited to be talking to you about that today because I know so many people will resonate Let's start with a little bit of history. You weren't born here in Australia, were you? I was not. Ooh. We're going right back to Australia. It's going to be a long episode. I'm like, we're going full Joe Rogan here. It's going to be three or four hours long. thank you. I would love that. (laughs) Strap in, guys. So, yes, I was born in South Korea in a little town called Daegu City, which is actually now called Daegu. So they've reverted to their original Korean names and was adopted by the most amazing country bumpkin and Australian Caucasian family and came to Australia when I was five and a half months old, I think, on my maternal grandfather's birthday. So my idea of myself as a bit of a gift to the family um, <laughs> has continued throughout my life. Amazing. <laughs> but that definitely led to, firstly, having to grapple very early on with the idea of finding the things that are unique about your story and appreciating rather than kind of stifling them. And also having such an interesting, unique cultural identity meant that getting comfortable with who you are has to happen very early because unlike a lot of adoption situations where often parents will wait until you're old enough to understand the concept and to cope emotionally, we're fully blown Asians. My parents are fully Caucasian, both from rural Victoria on dairy farms. So we had to Be aware of it from very, very early on. I've always had such a keen sense of sliding doors moments and just how different 
your life can be but for one decision or one interaction or one act by someone else that you didn't necessarily deserve but that still changes the course of your life so I think that's made me a very eager beaver to just like make the most of having an opportunity to grow up in the best country in the world Korea was a third world country at the time and education and careers for women were definitely not at the level that I've been able to enjoy here so yeah and education was something you certainly threw yourself right into (laughs) what did you do in and after school oh yes well right from the very beginning in hindsight of course everything makes sense I look back and wanted to do everything. That sense of like, I need to make the most of this opportunity I've been given here meant I did everything from the arty farty to the very nerd burger-esque kind of maths and science and tried to keep both of those sides of my brain alive, I think, for as long as possible. So that was all of primary school, even into high school, I kept music and art and drama and sport as well as the academic side of things, um, which has obviously (laughs) kept me very busy, led to a burnout started very early for me. I think I had glandular by the time I was eight. Oh my Um, God. (laughs) Can you imagine a little eight-year-old like with my schedule and all my color coding? Oh my God. I can't imagine and it's really cute it's not ideal but it's very cute but it's pretty cute (laughs) so very conscientious I was a ballerina in my first career and again like most young girls start ballet at a young age for fun and of course I was like this is my career when I was like five that was the first sort of iteration of my life and then that continued through high school I still didn't really know what I wanted to do I, I had thought that ballet was going to be my lifelong career until the point where it became mutually exclusive with studies and mum sat me down and just said I want you to go and follow your dreams and do everything and make the most of every opportunity you have but at the same time it could be a very short-lived career if you get injured or you know there's so few places in the world for this and all I'm asking is you finish school then you can do whatever you want. Just give me two years and then you can go off and and go back to ballet if you like. And I think looking back, I mean, I hated her and she ruined my life back then. (laughs) Yeah, but you were 16, so everyone hated their mom then. Totally. (laughs) But now I realise things happen in chapters of your life, reason, season, lifetime. And I thought it was a lifetime chapter, but it was the best earlier beginning to my life that set me up with discipline and self-management, but also was not meant to be my forever job. So, At what point did you realise that? I think it was once I gave it up full time, realised that I did get such a kick out of intellectual stimulation and that wasn't going to be possible to run alongside a ballet career. It's all consuming. I realised what a shame it would be if I had let that go and never discovered how much I do really enjoy the academic side of things. And also at that age, I'd been training so rigorously that I was like, oh, boys, beauty oh, <laughs> health vodkas and Bacardi breezes. <laughs> like that was when that chapter really hit of like, I've been missing out on so much by being every minute out of school I was training and taking myself very seriously, obviously, as is a trend of mine. <laughs> but I think as soon as I saw the life I had been excluding by closing so many doors now that I look back again I think hindsight just so many of the jigsaw puzzle pieces make sense I'm such a person that doesn't like to close doors I like to keep as many doors open as possible and I hadn't realized how much I pigeonholed myself to thinking that was my identity and as soon as I let go of it I was like oh wow there are so many other sides of me that were getting no time so I had a, a really wonderful, wildly rebellious year nine and 10 that was um, got in a lot of trouble, which was fun. But I promise you, you get through it. <laughs> I settled down for year 12 and then realized I wanted to get into law. So you got into law and you threw yourself right in and you were very successful. <laughs> and then you burnt out. Yes. Yes. And again, as I mentioned, that started at eight. It wasn't my first time. And I think with such a like voracious appetite for making the most of life, it's a blessing and a burden because if you don't pace yourself, you just consistently load your plate up too much. And combined with that, I'm also an optimist. So I'll overestimate my capacity to do anything. I still do that. I would love to say (laughs) I learned my lesson. But I got into a fantastic law firm. I had such a wonderful launch pad and beginning to my career surrounded by incredible people. And again, I you know, did my typical zero to hero thing. I didn't know if I wanted to be there forever. But the big sort of second sliding doors moment in my life was 
randomly a trip to Rwanda and by chance my husband Nick who you know well he has been an entrepreneur he's a serial entrepreneur and he's only ever worked for himself so at the time such a dramatic contrast and he had been working on a a really big charitable campaign with YGAP and the funds had gone to a school in Rwanda and we got the chance as sponsors to go and visit the school for a month. But I also, (laughs) despite all my efforts not to, did a lot of street food eating and and brought home a gut parasite, which was the start of the end, the start of a new start. (laughs) I often say beautiful new beginnings come disguised as painful endings. Or parasites. Or parasites, (laughs) which for the first five kilos was like, great way to lose pounds. Oh, God. Ten kilos later. (gasps) And you know I'm like a 12-year-old Asian boy body (laughs) to begin with, so I didn't have that much weight to lose, but was just so disconnected from again like health and your body and the signs it gives you that I went back to work the next day after getting home from Africa ignored the weight loss ignored the appetite disruption the fatigue the headaches and uh, I collapsed in the middle of a meeting it was literally collapsed literally got up felt really weird (laughs) actually it's so funny I don't think I've told this story before but we were sitting as a team for someone's birthday and I had a bite of cake and they all thought that she gave me food poisoning (laughs) because I got up and for some reason it must have hit me at that moment and I just bolted to the bathroom thinking I was either going to pass out or throw up or my body just was so stressed and now I know it was the first proper panic attack that I'd had but I had always thought panic attack meant panicking like that Mm. it was consciously triggered by something stressful or that anxiety was the same as feeling anxious and I didn't feel anxious I felt physiologically like I was going to have a heart attack so I didn't understand what was happening I was in there for eight hours I couldn't leave the toilet because I was like am I going to throw up am I going to shit my pants like what is happening to my body I think I ended up calling Nick and getting him to meet me out the back of the back elevator because I didn't know I had a plastic bag with me someone had to bring me my bag into the toilet I just had never seen my mind and body just collapse like that but it was meant to happen because like life teaches you something over and over again until you learn what you need to and I was not slowing down short of being made to stop so it took me three or four months of almost being bedridden. I had to work from home. I could barely do anything. And it was the most humbling but difficult time to separate my identity from being productive and achieving stuff and doing. And I had to learn to be gentle and how to nourish my body and that broccoli isn't the solution. You can't smash your body all day and eat a broccoli and think it's all okay. So I discovered meditation and yoga and downtime was it's the first time I'd ever really understood that your brain needs a rest as well as your body the biggest thing that happened was I couldn't drink coffee anymore oh god and I was like a 10 cups a day kind of gal coffee breaks were our way to get up and leave the office and to get through the day so I was sort of like I'm a lawyer I mean I can't use any other stimulants like (laughs) it has to be legal what am I gonna do I can't drink coffee and it was in that process that I discovered matcha I got sent to the firm's headquarters in Hong Kong on my first deal back. I was so worried. Like I had been to so many doctors. I was so worried I wouldn't be able to cope with a plane flight and the hours over there are so much more intense. I was genuinely worried about my physical ability to make it through a day. But as soon as I got there, you know, in Asia, match is not the buzzword that it is here. It's been around for centuries. Everywhere that you can get a coffee, you can get a matcha latte and you get a really good boost of caffeine, but with It's got a unique amino acid in it called L-theanine, which makes it slow release into your blood. So you don't get the spike and crash. Your adrenals aren't kind of freaking out like mine were. And I got hooked on this miracle green powder and couldn't understand why Australians were on the pulse with health. Our health and wellness market was booming. People were drinking spirulina, which I think tastes like foot. But they they know it's healthy. So they're like, I will tolerate that for how good it is. Whereas matcha just tastes like green tea and has 137 times the antioxidants of regular green tea. So that was the birth of my new chapter of learning how to actually look after myself but also separating what I wanted in life from just what I thought I should do. I'm going to rewind a little bit. Did the idea to make this a business come from the fact that you saw everyone had matcha there and you realised there was a niche in the market here and you'd found kind of a passion for it? 
your partner at the time was his entrepreneurial brain did that make yours tick in that way too what made you rather than go oh there's this great green drink they have over (laughs) here and I'm just going to go home and tell people about this cool thing I found out about what made you decide to make that a business that is such a good question and I think it is absolutely the influence of someone who thinks that way that helped me see that because I would always stumble across gaps in the market from personal frustrations, but I would never go, maybe I could solve that gap. Maybe I could close that myself. And this is why I think you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with and the people you surround yourself with are the most important for your mentality. Because in my corporate life, All my friends were risk averse like me. Our job was to find risks and avoid them. Like that's what a lawyer does. So all I could always see were the problems, the risks, the reasons why I shouldn't do something different. And also I knew what I was good at. So I was like, why would I do something that I've never done before? I have no experience with. Whereas he's so conditioned to see a business opportunity in everything. So he saw it miles away. For me, it was more that when we got back to Australia, it was not just hard to find it. It was impossible. I thought I'd be able to find it in somewhere really niche and it might be expensive, but you could literally not get it anywhere except very small, specific Japanese groceries that were ceremonial. So it was exorbitantly expensive or you could get it, you know, in an Asian grocery without any English labels. And I'm Asian and I don't go in there. So I'm like, health foodies are not going to go in there to get their matcha. So it was kind of my frustrations when I first came home combined with Nick's ability to see that that's an opportunity that made us go online and try and find a good supplier that there's a lot of sort of bastardized matcha that comes out of places that haven't grown it in the shade that leads to the antioxidant levels that it has and the chlorophyll or you know haven't been grown in the right soil and so we did a lot of research to find a tea farm that was verified had FDA certification was organic and all these kinds of things and the minimum you could order was bulk we thought, well, we've got a several a day habit between us. We'll be fine. It arrived. <laughs> there were like 15 million serves or something. And we're like, oh, that's too Should much. Should take us a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be that person that has a like Tupperware matcha party to get rid of some of this powder. But maybe, <laughs> you know, Nick was like, well, why don't we sell some? And I actually think looking back that dreaming big is the most amazing wonderful side effect of this life that we live in now you can do anything you can literally achieve anything the democratization of business and influence has been the most wonderful thing and also not being siloed into lifelong careers means we can all evolve into different people and just opportunity is so rife but I think sometimes you dream so big that you scare yourself off doing anything at all so the fact that it started as sort of this very low risk almost secret random project that was a hobby it had no expectation on it and no one knew it was us it removed most of the risk that stops you starting no one knew would ever know if we failed because no one knew it was us so there was no fear of looking stupid I mean there was of course to an extent but just to each other we'd already bought the stock so that big jump that you know commits you to doing something it was already there so we had to get rid of it was it a big investment financially it was about five thousand australian so at the time it felt i mean that's not nothing by any means now it seems like a really small amount of stock to buy but at the time that was a lot we only had one stable income at the time so that first few months of the business was very much a cash flow jigsaw. And I think that's part of business. It is still a cash flow jigsaw. But yeah, it was about 5000 And we thought even if we only make back a little bit, my big goal was if I sell one bag to a stranger, I can put it on my LinkedIn that I'm an entrepreneur. And having very low hopes and expectations actually makes it easy to succeed because you're only holding yourself to like one small thing. And now I I reverse engineer that all the time and think what's the minimum viable product or service that I can offer. So for us, it was what are the things we need for one bag? Because if you have enough for one bag, then you can probably do five bags and then you can do 10 bags and then you don't have to figure out what you need for 100 bags until you get there. So we realized we've got the powder. What do we put it in? Googled it, put it in a bag. What kind of temperature control does the bag need to have for matcha does it need to be waterproof and all those kinds of things and then next was how do you seal the bag I didn't know there were heat sealers I didn't know where you bought them but Google tells you everything (laughs) I love how much the g word comes up in all of our interviews it's so great and I also love hearing it too knowing that not everyone 
knows everything. There's still business people Googling every day. Oh, totally. And I actually have found that the more I've surrounded myself with fellow business people, the more you realize no one knows anything. But the willingness to not know and do it anyway, I think is why it's such an exciting environment to be in. Because in my former life and absolutely like there's a reason we have lawyers they're so valuable and their way of thinking stops a lot of things happening (laughs) but I was trained to do the opposite I was trained to wait until I had 150% of the criteria covered before I would act on anything and I had to unlearn all that and realize as a business person you have to do it 10 steps before you're ready. You need to go at 50% or you'll never start. And you'll figure out the remaining 50% by feedback. So put out your first, you know, terribly crappy now. I look back and cringe at the first bags and logos that we sent out. But I would never have been able to improve them unless I put them out there and got people to you say, you know, this isn't waterproof or this doesn't stand up properly or it's not big enough or whatever it is. So <laughs> I also think if you don't cringe at the first product you put out there, then you're not doing it right. I always say that. <laughs> I always say that. I feel like you were one of the first people probably to say that to me when I started George Elliott. And really? I was like, yeah, but I don't want to be embarrassed by it. But the point is you're not embarrassed by it at the time. No. Yeah. As you said, when you look back, that's showing growth. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you don't want to be cringing in the moment. No, exactly. (laughs) Or other people are going to cringe and they won't buy it. (laughs) But yeah, it was like just such an unbelievably DIY, not even sure right up until the last minute that we were actually going to do it. Everything was from Alibaba or eBay. The labels we printed on, like the basic labels you get from Officeworks, lining up behind uni students, printing their exam notes and trying to like get our business ready to go. You just realize how little you need to launch an idea, how quickly you refine and tweak and how much it's so true to start before you're ready because you'll never be ready unless you start. And then everything from then was scary, overwhelming, really hard, but so exciting because you just tweak one thing at a time. We never could have started the business we have now then. And the point isn't to do that anyway. We grew into it slowly. And as we got bigger, you know, we packed it all ourselves at the start in a friend's commercial kitchen, just figured out the regulations of food safety and what you'd need. And for a good amount of time, the demand was only such that we could pack it ourselves. So why wouldn't you start like that? You don't need a factory to begin with. It would have been a waste. So we waited and grew into it. I stayed at the law firm for another six months, I think. At the time, social media was, it had algorithms, but they were a lot more straightforward. If you ticked a certain amount of boxes, you could guarantee that you would grow really quickly. And food and wellness was really booming at the time. So it was a good combination of a good idea with good timing. And Urban Outfitters in the US had found us on Instagram because all the trends were emerging online and asked for, I think it was triple the bags that we'd sold until that point in one purchase order. Wow. And the only way to say yes was for one of us to go full time. That was like the third big sliding doors moment of, oh my gosh, you know, when you can do everything and you can say yes to both, there's no real risk. You know, you've got your wage on one stable side of your life and then the other thing's kind of low risk because you're not really going all in. But as soon as you have to actually choose, that was more scary than the start because the start I was like, whatever, no one's going to find out if I quit in a week. But it got to that point where it was one or the other. And that was where I realized the seize the A idea really culminated in that moment. It was there's this life that's very successful. It's got a clear trajectory. It's stable. There's money. There's prestige. There's learning opportunities. Or there's this totally unguaranteed random Instagram-based Shopify life with a product that has no market proof because it's new and we have no experience in FMCG or anything at all. But what's the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? And... What will future me regret? And future me knows that law will always be there. Law and tax, they're the two things that are never going to go away. And yes, I might be behind my peers by a few years and I might have missed a bit of experience and I did end up having to say no to an associateship with the Chief Justice of the High Court, which is like there's seven positions every year, but one or two with her every year and I'd applied five years before, but I wasn't really walking away from law. It was just like, a, will pause this and see what happens. But I only had one chance to be first to market with this product, to do it with my partner and to go into a business that had already proved itself for six months. So it was a hard decision, but it also was obvious what the right thing was to do. And that was five and a half years ago and I haven't looked back. So would you call that Urban Outfitters order your kind of pivotal moment? 
yes. was that when it when it all changed and yeah. how did you make sure that was successful and continue to grow from there how much yeah. did it change the business it definitely became very real and the risks went from basically no risk to your whole livelihood depends on this now neither of you have a wage now as well like in a unit often one of you can cover the other but everything had to be on savings we couldn't borrow any funds because we didn't have jobs and a salary it became very serious but I almost think that that solemn nature of the risk made it me work harder it made me upskill more it made me stop with the I mean obviously it still comes all the time but the imposter syndrome Sometimes you allow yourself to indulge in that. And especially as women in the workplace, we're very conditioned to play down our skills. So straight away, as a default, because it protects me from failure, I'd go to, oh, like, I'm so bad at this. I don't know anything. Like, I'm just a corporate and blah, blah, blah. But it made me own the gaps in my knowledge and go, well, actually, I probably have some transferable skills. I can probably make this work. But what are the areas where I really need to, like, do some work on, get some mentors, talk widely, What are the areas that aren't working, that are working? And suddenly I had time to do all that. And I've got to say, looking back, I thought the first week of freedom (laughs) would be the most exciting week of my life. It was the worst week I think I've had in such a long time. because I had gone from having a life that was so structured. Like I knew when my lunch breaks were, my toilet breaks. Like I knew when I had to be at my desk and when I could leave my desk. And there was such clear expectations around your billable hours, like everything was measurable. So I sat there for five days, like, who tells me what to do? Do I eat now? Like, I literally was twiddling my thumbs, like, what am I supposed to do with this time? And now a lot of us have really flexible working arrangements, but then it wasn't as common. So I couldn't even ask people like, what do you do? Do you like answer emails for half an hour and then like fulfill orders for the other half an hour? You were at the post office. So it took me a really long time to adjust to no structure. I burnt out again because I just worked all of the hours then because I was like, oh, every time I do something, the productivity has a result in the business and the figures go up and it's so exciting. And you feel guilty if you switch off because you're setting your own hours. So there's no clocking off. There's Mm. no, okay, you finish for the day and you can come back tomorrow. If something doesn't get done, that's on you. Totally. And in a big corporation, someone else will pick up the slack. Like it's someone else's job to do the finances. It's someone else's job to figure out your tax like someone is delegated every separate area that's their skill set whereas in a business I was like oh well if I'm not doing my actual work I need to do the admin that supports the work like regulatory and like PAYG for our employees and all these ancillary things that you'd never had to distract yourself with before and there's never not something on your to-do list and the pace you go at I thought you had to go so hard so fast so I went 500% for the first year and Nick did the same and suddenly also living and working together we had no boundaries whatsoever because we were like so excited and seeing the business grow and we were in the US and then we were traveling and launching new things all the time and no one tells you like there's such a thing as too much of a good thing the first year burnout none of it came from anything negative like there was stress and there was a lot of financial literacy I had to catch up on to learn about the books and like the profit and loss like who even knows I got to the end of the first year I had no idea how much we'd made or didn't make or had no idea but I'd realized like if you go 500% for a short amount of time if you you know wipe yourself out to zero percent then for six months while you recover what's the point if you can't sustain your pace like it's not a real pace it's such an artificial measure of what you can achieve and that messed me up I reckon for two or three years while I figured out And Nick figured out how to get enough time together, separately, work on, work off as a couple, as business partners. And then, of course, we opened the cafe within a year. So we kept adding projects and not getting anything else off the plate. We just keep loading, loading, loading. And every lesson I'd learned the first burnout around, I was like, but I have a wellness business. I'm going to be the picture (laughs) of wellness. I can't burn out, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I drink matcha every day. (laughs) But, yeah, I ended up, I think... I had maybe three months of severe adrenal fatigue again because I just went too hard too fast. And then in that period, there is no sick leave. So the business just slows to a halt. And I realized, well, that was my fault and no one's going to fix that for me. It's my responsibility to make myself go at 80%, as uncomfortable as that is for someone who's like loves to go a million miles an hour, but so that I can last and so that I can still have a relationship and friendships and joy and like 
you can probably see that this is where the actual CZA concept started to come about, that joy is, it's so important to find it somewhere in your life. But even if you're lucky enough to find it in your career, that can't be the only place you find it. That's where the idea or the the initial concept of CZA came from. When did that become a tangible thing? Oh, good question. So I had about three or four years of the business life and living my dreams and waking up every day just immensely excited and passionate about what we were doing. But I also realized I was starting to change and our business was starting to change and my role was starting to move further and further away from people because it had gotten to the scale up point. But the people bit was the bit that I really like. That's always been the bit that made me excited. Also, your business sometimes gets to the point where your skills, like it outgrows what you're able to do, to do it justice. It was growing so fast, but our FMCG experience, once we got to a certain level, was the winging it method sometimes doesn't work anymore. So I think around three or four years in, I started to feel like, oh, the bit that I love is getting further and further away. I should be so happy with where I am because it's what I left a whole life for. But maybe this isn't forever. Maybe it's another stepping stone. Maybe the matcha chapter was to get me out of something, but also to start to realize like every experience in your life will either bring you new jigsaw puzzle pieces or get rid of old ones. I had thought I'd done my whole puzzle, but I was starting to realize I need more people. I need more fluff. Like it got very serious. It got figures based and numbers and trajectories and forecasting and we got investors in and it started to become really heavy and also a lot of masculine energy because all my business partners were men which is amazing because I'm too fluffy and I'll just you know we'll earn no money and I'll just be fluffy and yay but like destitute (laughs) (laughs) but the marketing will be amazing (laughs) but I realized I missed the part of me that's really fluffy and bubbly I also had no outlet for the crappy stuff you can't post on match maiden I had an anxiety attack last night. That's why you're not getting any of your orders because I'm in the fetal position and I have my period and it's gross and it's not appropriate. So I started putting all that on my personal page. I also had another middle of the night wake up moment in 2017 where I realized that my life philosophy was called Seize the A and I registered the business name and I didn't use it for two years. Wow. It just sat there and I knew another chapter was coming I didn't know what it looked like and this is why I always try and remind people that you're not meant to jump to the end. Everything is a stepping stone. The quote that I love using is, you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. Mm. So I was only two steps in and I thought I was at the end. But I knew, okay, this philosophy is coming out. This is getting more traction than the polished, glossy business stuff now. People are really enjoying seeing more personal behind-the-scenes stories. They're enjoying seeing how you navigate the really shit bits, the relationship challenges, the, you know, managing your energy, the failure, the self-doubt, all of that stuff started to become what I would, you know, speak about on podcasts more than how did you grow the business. And I thought there's something in this and there's something in these conversations that I'm having backstage and in cars and, you know, with fellow business people and we're all resonating about the same content, but no one's putting it anywhere. And I realized that's what I want to do with these concepts. I want people to hear from lots of different people who have been through these similar things to help them break the autopilot circuit. I realized I had been on a conveyor belt of productivity. I had been so distracted by busy and productive and successful that I had missed joy altogether. Then I had changed my life and took a step towards my yay and then done it again by corporatizing my business and not taking breaks there and not making room for joy. And I was like, this needs to live somewhere. And that's how the podcast came about was just where do conversations live? What equipment do I need for one episode? Same as the one bag of matcha. I just got mics. I just learnt enough to get one episode up and I'd figure out the rest afterwards. But then the setup for the next hundred episodes was the same. And as I started to have the conversations, hour-long conversations with people from all walks of life, different ages, different life structures, and beyond business too, I realized I thought seizing my yay was leaving corporate to go into business. But actually anyone's yay, sometimes it's outside of work. Sometimes putting a deliverable and a price tag on something kills the joy in what you do. So you need your yay to be your hobby. Whereas some people love to have their yay in their work. And I was like, oh, 
the yay is the main thing. It's not the way it looks like the how you get the yay is meant to be different, but the why needs to be the thing we focus on because there are so many people who are wealthy and respected and famous or popular and not happy. And why? What is that about? Why have we lost sight of the yay? Like, what's the point in working and dying? It's not what life is about. Absolutely. And all of those lessons and learnings are so true and resonate with so many people, but you have made it a business. How do you monetize (laughs) such a, in your words, fluffy idea? Yeah, I think, again, it helped me a lot that I didn't go into it with that expectation. And I think a lot of people do try and reverse engineer the lifestyle they want or the end result that they want and miss the process altogether. So rather than going, I need to change my livelihood, I don't want to run Matra as my main job anymore, I want to do something that looks more like this, I started it as a hobby on the side as my way of getting joy separate to my job. There was no monetary obligation, no sponsors, no timeline. I never announced how often I'd release it. It was meant to just be whenever I could fit it in. And again, by having that like very low base of expectations at the start, it means that you make decisions based on what you think is really good content and what you really enjoy, like what makes you yay, instead of going, how am I going to get sponsors? What content do I need? Like reverse engineering everything based on making it monetize. And because of that, I think when you're not trying so hard to monetize something and you just concentrate on doing a good job, the monetization comes because people see that it's a really good product. So I kind of did it without hoping for that. And then it just evolved by itself as I started to love it more and just put more energy into it and realize how much I truly believe my purpose is these kind of conversations. I think like, what's the other quote that I really love? People will never remember what you said or what you did. They'll always remember how you made them feel. And another thing that I've learned and try and encourage people to do is to network before you're ready. Don't wait until you need someone with a particular skill set to meet them or to search for them. Throw the net as wide as you can from the beginning because relationships are everything. You never know when you're going to have an opportunity to give someone with a specific skill set or the reverse. So even back in the law days, I used to have coffees and catch ups with people who I, in the immediate, we had nothing to offer each other. But years later, I've done an ad on the podcast for their business that they started after they left their job or, you know, some random thing has come together. And I think because we're also instant gratuity focused, we don't do that. We don't future plan much and invest into things that don't have an immediate output for us but those are the relationships that are the longest standing ones are the ones that now I'm like hey I've got this show I'd love to help you with this launch do you want to time an episode around this new thing that you're releasing and then they get really excited and then that starts up a new relationship and it's again like such a buzzword but growing organically is such a good way to do it and don't put too much pressure on yourself to monetize straight away because It'll come. It'll come as you start to like lay the foundations. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you about anything, but about this for hours <laughs> and, and hours. Do. And we do for hours. But I feel like we've got to wrap up at some point. And I think that's a really kind of nice organic um, point. But I do have five quick questions for you to end the podcast on. Don't worry, they're not stressful ones. They're just, I love to hear how different business women answer the same questions. I feel like we can learn so much from that. So number one is kind of more physical one. What's the one app or piece of technology that you just could not live without? Oh, that's a great one. The most valuable sort of platform that we have is zero our accounting software, because I tried to do it myself, all our bookkeeping at the start in spreadsheets on Excel, and it was a disaster. (laughs) And as much as fluffy me goes straight to the idea and the launch and the activating and the engagement in the community, I think we really underestimate how much you need to get things right financially and get your books right and your record keeping right. And if you do ever want to go into sell or take on investors, or even just make sure that you're making money and you're not throwing your life into something that doesn't have the right margins. Nick is so across the numbers. And I think having a business partner that skills and weaknesses correspond to the opposite of yours is so valuable because he's always been like, get across the numbers. And it's meant that 
in a world where startups don't, like a big percentage of them don't last past a certain amount of time, we have lasted the distance because if it were up to me, we would have had an amazing first year and then like crashed because we had no money. So getting your accounting right is really important. But in terms of like other apps, we use everything and we rely on them so heavily. So photo editing apps, obviously, Instagram, Twitter, video editing apps, Canva, like for ads and um, banners and quotes and you can learn so much you can do so much in-house and it's just I could make a list of a thousand apps that we use every day but yeah (laughs) it stresses me to think about a phone crashing ever like what would I I do in my life um question number two is what do you wish someone had told you in the early days now you've got a lot of time where you could have this implemented in in the early days of your law career in the early days of match a maiden CZA, wherever it may be, what's something you kind of wish someone had told you? That's a great question. And I think my answer is similar to the what do you wish you could have told your 13-year-old self, you know, those kinds of questions. I actually truly believe that everything happens for a reason and most of the time you won't know that reason for a very long time. So there's a lot more patience and surrender and being willing to not know how things are going to work out required for the best possible things to work out. So even though there are so many warnings I would have liked to give myself, and I think the main one would have had to be around pacing yourself because we all have limits. It's so rude and it's so unfortunate. And our limits look different to each other as well. And I would try and keep up with people who just have a different constitution to me or who just expend energy differently and recharge differently. So I guess one of the things I would say is pace yourself and keep your blinkers on. Like don't look always to what everyone else is doing, even though it's so difficult because you are only on your own journey. Be patient with the process. If you could go back in time, what is one thing that you would change? I think I would change Nick and I realizing earlier how to preserve our personal relationship as against our business relationship because I reckon there's a good we've been together this is our 12th year we've been married for nearly two and a good four I reckon was quite consumed by evolving from having completely different lives and careers and very clear delineation of how was work today for you how's work today for you okay now let's do us stuff to everything is us stuff so then nothing's us stuff yeah I wouldn't change it because it was good for the business it's given us so much and now if you can make it work working with your partner towards the same goal is the most rewarding thing ever and you have so much respect for each other and you learn so much about each other but I also am like we did lose a lot of time where we didn't travel we didn't make time for any downtime we didn't have date night and that's a shame But I mean, we've made up for it since then, so it's okay. But if I did change anything, I think it would be that. And missing out on other personal things, friendships. So I think, yeah, getting my priorities straight. Oh my gosh, you just just got everything worked out. I'm so inspired by you. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm such a mess of a human. This is why we don't have kids yet. Um, Sarah, what are you most proud of? Oh my gosh. More recently, I think the book. Starting CZA as a hobby and thinking that it was just going to be a big personal satisfaction project and then learning to practice what I preached about not worrying about it being a popularity contest, not worrying about like I've released a lot of products because I think they're really fun, like the quote book and the jewelry and just thinking how much joy that that could bring to a few people and not worrying if they failed and them turning out to go well and then writing a book like I think I share a lot but writing a book as if you would write a diary and then sharing that intimate way that your brain works and thinks about the world is more vulnerable than I knew until it was out and I was like oh my god now they're oh my reading god, that's it. out strangers are reading this I'm really proud that I have a record forever no matter what changes of everything I believed about life and making the most of it and its challenges and its ups and downs, I will permanently have a record of who I was at this time in my life. And it also happened to coincide with the biggest period of uncertainty our generation and the generations on either side will probably ever see. And I could never have timed that a book about embracing uncertainty, embracing discomfort, making the most out of slates that were cleared that you didn't want cleared and you didn't plan for them 
and finding joy in those small moments for that to come out during a pandemic and for it still to have brought a lot of people guidance and joy I'm really really proud of it and I wasn't at the start because it released in locked at stage four for us so there were no bookstores open couldn't do a launch couldn't see anyone reading it it was a really weird time to launch something like that and I got really bogged down in like oh sales and like stuff and I wasn't proud of it because I was so worried also about what I'd written and was it right and did it apply now even though I wrote it before the pandemic and all this kind of stuff and now I'm like I'm really proud of that. So you should be. And my last question for you today, Sarah Davidson, what's the biggest misconception about you, about your businesses, your industry? I have never been asked that question. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think because I'm a bit of an oversharer, I kind of address what would otherwise be a misconception. If you don't follow closely, you could easily think because everything is very joy-focused and I am by default, very bubbly and excitable. As in, it's harder for me not to be like that. I just am all the time. (laughs) I think you could assume that things are very easy or that it's very joyful all the time and that positivity comes without much work because a lot of the time it does. A lot of the time my default is, life is amazing, everyone's so good, let me hug you. Like my love language, I don't shake hands, I hug. And it didn't work in corporate. Not <laughs> or <approach>. COVID. <laughs> or COVID. I felt like I lost a limb not being able to hug people. But the reality of having a very overactive brain which allows the high highs is that it has to experience the low lows. And I think many high-functioning people, in fact, a lot of people and maybe even the majority of people who do have anxiety or other sort of mental health challenges or struggles, it is because their brain does the wonderful things it does that it comes with a bit of a backlash when you overdo it or when you don't understand that your brain is something that needs to be looked after and it can't just keep delivering for you all the time. And I only really learned to respect my mind recently I used to think health was, again, such a physical thing and I didn't give it any time. I would treat events, for example, where you're constantly stimulated and you are thinking about work because you're thinking about relationships and opportunities and being on and getting the most for the person who's invited you and the brand interactions and all those things. I used to do that in my off time and then work in my work time and not leave any other time and think, but I've been playing, I've been, you know... When I do that, I get severe anxiety and I think it's a bit of a misnomer because it's not the same as feeling anxious and clinical anxiety is physiological. It's like numb arms, throat closes, heart rate racing, appetite loss, sometimes can't leave the house anxious and it's not common but it's crippling when it's there and it doesn't also manage itself without a lot of effort. I try and talk about that a lot because I don't want it to always look rosy and I I want to also appreciate that the depth of the good comes with, like that's sort of a cost you pay. So it's like so worth it. But none of us don't have crap going on. And one of my favorite quotes ever is, be kind to everyone for you never know what's going on behind closed doors. And it's true in this day and age and the connection that's required of us just to live and be a human in the world and have friends requires screen time that's unprecedented and no one's not anxious around their devices really and I think there's a lot of fallout for our a lot of our mental health helps 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 that we're all learning how to manage the right way well you certainly seem to have it all together so whether you're faking it till you make it or what girl I feel very inspired after this talk as I do whenever I speak to you or uh, listen to you or read you or anything and I know that our Lady Startups Movement community will just have absolutely loved this chat and we can't wait to have you on a future season when you start your next business and your next one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I love you thank you so much for having me definite misconception is that you know I hate talking obviously <laughs> I'm really quiet and I don't love a chat <laughs> I'm actually surprised with you and I together this didn't go for five oh, hours <laughs> I'm like at least you're looking at the clock because I'm certainly not I have no idea what time it is <laughs> now a word from Mia Oh, I love that. Hello, I'm Mia Friedman. I'm the founder of Lady Startup. 
And each week I'm going to be bringing you a lady startup lesson as inspired by the incredible women featured on each episode. This week, when I listened to Sarah's story, I found it to be such a familiar one. It's something that I know so many of you would have probably been yelling at your phone. That is so me while you're listening to her story. Fatigue, exhaustion, burnout. It's a constant cycle for so many women who've just started their businesses. Now, I will never sugarcoat the experience of being a lady startup. I will never tell you that starting a business is super easy and pretend that it's not hard work every single day. It is bloody hard, so hard that at times you might just want to quit. I tried to quit all the time at the beginning, except there was nobody to take my resignation letter because there was just me. So yes, I've been there and I've felt that feeling that you might be feeling now. But Mia, please tell me there is a solution is what I bet you're thinking. Please don't tell me I'm just doomed and this is just something I have to learn to live with. Well, yes and no. Mostly no though, because when I first started at Mamma Mia, I wore all of the hats. I was the head of finance, the sales exec, the marketing director, the graphic designer, the writer, the editor. I also did customer service. I unlocked the toilet and community management. And I bought the snacks. I did everything pretty much. And the reality is that when you first start your business, you kind of need to be ready to be exhausted to a point and roll up your sleeves. And there's an exhilaration in that as well, because you are the boss. You are in charge of all the decisions. But that is not a long-term strategy. If you're planning to never outsource and never hire within your business, then you have to be accepting of the fact that you're probably not going to be able to grow. And if you're always in that state of doing everything yourself, there is a chance that you'll end up hating what you do and you might even feel resentful towards your business. Now, it doesn't have to be a huge scary thing making your first hire. It can be just a freelancer or a contractor or even a VA, a virtual assistant who just helps you out for a few hours a week. And slowly, slowly, you can build this up to be more or maybe less, maybe you only need an hour every two weeks. But what is fantastic about outsourcing to freelancers and other small businesses is that usually you can pay them per hour. So there isn't that huge commitment of taking on anyone full time and paying a salary. You can start really, really small. So a few places that are good to start is to check out the Lady Startup Lounge, which is our public group on Facebook. Make a post inside the group and call out asking for whatever help you need in whatever specific field. And there will be a bunch of other Lady Startups inside who have businesses in whatever area of expertise you need. And because they're also Lady Startups, they'll be like-minded. So it's a really, really good place to start. Remember, always do a bit of a background check to be sure before you hand over any money or pay for any services. And now back to you, Georgia. Thanks for listening to Lady Startup Stories. To find out more about the Lady Startup courses, head to www.ladystartup.com forward slash pages forward slash home. I'm Georgia Love. You can find out more about my Lady Startup at at lovegeorgiaelliot on Instagram. Lady Startup Stories is produced by Michaela Floriano. The executive producer of Lady Startup Stories is Eliza Ratliff. We'll see you on mamamia.com.au. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.